0: Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us, verse one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now.
1: Elisa Haggerty, welcome to the process podcast. We are actually, before I hand the mic over to you, we are doing, (laughs) here, so we are actually on each other's podcast right now or at some time in the future we are going to be. But I would like to start by welcoming you to the process podcast. Um, You know, thank you so much for reaching out on social media. Uh, I think we have a lot of things in common um, in the space that we work and in the people that we serve. So I'm very, very much looking forward to this conversation, but I'll hand it over to you now, Elisa. Um perhaps <laughs> i like introduce your podcast and who you are.
0: Yeah, well, I'm happy to be on the Process Podcast, Um, and I love a podcast swap. This is our first podcast swap, or at least mine, and um, I I think it's a really cool way to just get to know each other and also our audiences and and share messages that matter. Um, So I would say welcome to my podcast, The School of Unlearning. Um, I was really impressed just with your work over the years with athletes running your own gym, high performance, and I'm so curious to kind of dig into what performance means to you. And and how how you began all of this work and how you sustain it, knowing that it is a full time mind body commitment, right? I mean, being a human is that, but doing it for other people is uh, requires quite a lot. So, I'm curious what you're looking to unlearn in your life as you're, you know, in this chapter um, uh, as a human, as a podcaster, as a coach. So, yeah, I'm stoked to get into to our shared interests.
1: Lisa, can you tell me about why you call your podcast a school of unlearning and the the concept of unlearning? What does that mean?
0: Uh, Well, I think unlearning is something everyone has to define for themselves. I don't think there's necessarily one textbook definition. I think that's the beauty of it. Um, I've interviewed almost 40 guests on my podcast already and everyone says something different. Um, I I think to me, unlearning is a bit of questioning uh, the playbooks that were given to you and rewriting them so that they actually fit your physiology, your nervous system, your desires, so that you feel aligned with your life. I think I hit this point, maybe the beginning of COVID. Uh, I'm based in Brooklyn, New York for your audience. Um, Used to live in Hong Kong, so we kind of have a shared connection there. I, yeah, mid COVID, early COVID, I was feeling, I was at a job at a medical company and I was like really craving meaning, really craving connection. And I realized at that point in my life, maybe I was 36 or 37, probably 36. And I was like, I am like actively every single day rewriting the playbooks for relationship, how to work at a company, my relationship with money, like where I live and why, like what does success mean to me? Like it wasn't that I was never um, a reflective person or you know, that I wasn't always questioning things, but it was at this critical time where the world was falling apart. And I was like, what really matters? And I want to talk to other people because I know I'm not the only one grappling with what are we doing here on you know, planet earth and and why are we doing it? You know? And that's kind of like, I was like, I think we're all basically unlearning. I think adulting is unlearning truly. (laughs) I think it's unlearning what you were fed the first 20 years of your life and, um, keeping some good stuff and building upon that too. what do you what do you think unlearning is what's your kind of vibe with it
1: well it's interesting because i you know i've I've never really used the words unlearning um but in hearing you define it um there's a lot of other i think principles that very much align with the same concept it's kind of like the fixed mindset and the growth mindset um you know Mm. knowing that 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 you can change your, your situation and that we aren't set in stone and, and your past and your traumas don't define who you are and if you want to make change you can um and then i guess uh this self self-growth and, and, and exploration which is kind of like you're looking you know, when you're looking into the future and 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 trying to evolve the current you into being something else and i guess in order to do that there needs to be unlearning It's a letting mm-hmm. go of the past and who you currently are in order to to open up the new and who you want to be uh so i think it's actually a very nice i i, I like it i like it as just more language to explain something that i think about and talk about all the time
0: yeah i, I like that you kind of reference the past present future i mean i think i think every kind of every day here living in, on planet earth i'm just like oh i'd never thought about that before or I've never thought to approach someone that way, or you know, and so I, I, I don't know where it began for all of us as humans. Maybe it's our desire for security, like our desire to have things be one way. But I just find that I think when I grew, was growing up in a small town in New Jersey, I just thought my friends are my friends, and they were going to be there for life, and I was always going to love and be able to play basketball, and I was going to become an English teacher and do that for forty years and retire. And I mean, obviously, none of that happened, you know. And so I think there's this sense of like when you're young and you're forming your, your, your sense of identity and safety in the world, you just think things are going to be a certain way. And yeah, you get to adulthood and you, you really get to reckon with change and uncertainty. So.
1: Was there, was there a turning point for you? Was there something like radically that changed your life that made you become even more the concept of unlearning?
0: Um. I mean, I think what got me into the work. So my background is in education. I was a high school English teacher, uh, for four years. And along that path, I just kind of thought I would stay in that role forever. I'd love teaching. I love kids. I loved, uh, literature and stories and people, right. It seemed like a no brainer to me. Um, but when I was 22, uh, I got in a really bad car accident and I was hit by a car. I was riding my bicycle and I had a really bad concussion and, uh, Yeah, I went into a phase of really extreme anxiety and depression. You know, I think of back then, though, that was like 17 years ago. We didn't know a lot about concussions. And so they just kind of were like, drink a Gatorade, rest for a couple days, and you'll be fine. And that was not the case. And so I learned at that ripe young age with basically a bruised tailbone and a brain that was basically just like concussed, like truly, like really out of it, right? I I learned that I had to really create my own healing path. You know, Western medicine was like take medications forever. You know, you're done, toast. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? I've never even, you know, I had sports anxiety, but I never had anxiety and depression. So I really had to go out there, I felt, and and fend for myself and fight for myself. And so, a college coach of mine, she called me and I was in tears, and she sent me a book, and it was a a book on Buddhism, um, which you know I, I dabble in, I practice in, I I kind of respect all world religions, right, in some way. And this book was called When Things Fall Apart. And I had never learned or thought about letting things let, letting the pieces be on the ground and be a little bit broken and like sit in the broken energy of heartbreak or an injury or your life turning around. So I, I really had to build my own resources back then. And that's when I began to unlearn mental health. I began to unlearn relationships. Um, and I kind of created my own world, you know, at that point. So. So can I
1: can I ask? You know, when picking up that book and starting starting the unlearning process, what were some of the massive contributors that were adding to your anxiety?
0: Well, like in my personal life, you mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. At that point in time, you know, you, you had this concussion. Yeah. Start suffering from anxiety. It- what were the things? Totally. That were
0: I mean, I think it was just, I had just finished playing college basketball. So I had a team, I had these group of people, these coaches that were there with me every day. And then you're thrust into the real world, right? Where unless you're on a team or have an organization that you're with you, you're kind of navigating life alone again in some weird way. Um, I also was, was realizing more about my sexuality. I realized I was gay. I was a lesbian and my family didn't know that. (laughs) And so I just, I really couldn't hold it in anymore. And I think with the concussion and all the anxiety and depression I was feeling, I had to let them know, like I was going through some other type of change that I had been withholding from them. And we know, I'm sure all of everyone listening here knows the energy drain that withholding brings. It's truly exhausting to keep something in. And so it was sort of this crisis, right? It was like, they say a perfect storm and i thought well i have to tell them and of course they were very loving and supportive really for the most part you know a little shocked but um you know they they did, they took care of me the best they could but there was a lot of factors there it was heartbreak it was going through my first breakup that same week during the car accident i mean it was gnarly you know <laughs> i was i was kind of like i looked up at the sky one day and i was like yo uh, i think the universe loves me i'm pretty sure whoever's running this show really loves me and they wouldn't put me through this if, if it wasn't for my growth, if it wasn't for my betterment. And I had to believe that in order to kind of get through that, that year of my life. So.
1: You know, you, you know, you're talking about um, holding things in and how exhausting that can be. Yeah. Where are you at in your own life now when it comes to holding things in Are you are you a completely open book.
0: Oh, um, I mean, I think what we have, what, like 16 to a hundred thousand thoughts a day, you know, and, and, beliefs and concepts and ideas that we're whirling with every day. So I think I reveal, I'm learning to reveal. So I think of it like as withholding, you know, when we withhold uh, a feeling, a thought, a belief, this is part of the work I do in conscious leadership. When we withhold, we project and then we, um, we lose connection. And when we choose to reveal, and that is an art, it's totally a skill, right? To like reveal consciously, not just dump on people. When you reveal, you own your story and you get to connect with yourself and the other person, hopefully, but definitely with yourself. So with me, uh, yeah, I, I'm i a lot more blunt, um, but I I am very lovingly blunt. And I put a lot of thought into the things I share with people. And um, yeah, my it, it definitely is a shift for me in the way that I operate. I say no a lot more. I'm like, no, I'm not going into Manhattan. <laughs> I'm not doing it on a Saturday night at 10 o'clock. I'm going to stay home and take care of myself. And I think that is sort of part of my learning process is like really listening to my body and being like, what, what do I need right now? So yeah. what what do you, what comes up for you when you think about this idea of withholding and revealing, like, uh, these are terms that I'm using, but they're pretty universal concepts. Like, what do you, what comes up for you?
1: Yeah. It's interesting. You talk about that. I, li- I literally just put a post up maybe just a couple of weeks ago, talking about kind of where I'm at now in my life when it comes to sharing uh, things that I would have deemed to be more personal and private in the past, um, mm-hmm. and I guess the the crux of the post was, you know, for so long I lived. There's two parts to it. Number one was that I wasn't actually consciously aware of the way that I felt most of the time, mm-hmm. so I hadn't created connection yeah. with my thoughts, my feelings, emotions, and I can I can relate a lot of that to the way to the environment that I was brought up in. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. an open speaking family that talked about our hard things we were a grit your teeth and get the job done type thing and as a result of that was just years and years and years and years of of um emotions and feelings that were swept under the rug and never Mm. really never really addressed
0: so much sweeping
1: yeah so much sweeping um and then you know getting to a point in my life where i realized that was who i was uh and i wanted to actually start to connect with some of my feelings and my thoughts and my emotions. Cause I could see that it was having a it was having a negative effect on my relationships. It was having mm-hmm. a negative effect on my ability to lead my team. Mm-hmm. um Yeah. And create meaningful connections with them. Uh And I guess like I was subconsciously realizing that it was creating a lot of distress in me. So I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't able to connect the dots as to why I'd always get sick or why I had mm-hmm. so many massive traumatic injuries or, why i'd have good days and i'd have really bad days or why i couldn't sleep it was just like mm-hmm. all these classic i guess uh stress symptoms that i would never be able to connect the dots and i would just put it down to oh. i'm just having a shit day you know it's right. just, just the way it goes right. but one day i was like no nah, there's got to be there's got to be something more here and so that kind of okay. my exploration with trying to unlock and listen and feel the things that i was actually feeling on a daily basis yeah and then that was quite a harrowing experience because then you start to realize like, (laughs) holy shit there's a lot that's
0: what that's when you begin to rumble you're like oh shit now we're going in (laughs) like we're not just surface level
1: (laughs) exactly there's a lot under the hood here and it was quite as as exciting as exciting as it was to start to connect with the feelings and emotions because it was like this is opening up a whole new experience of life for me it was Mm -hmm. also like every every day was like how much more like how much more mm. is there and seriously right yeah so there was many many mm-hmm. years of just digging up the past and trying to sit with it and figure it out and you know mm. like i said connect the dots and then you know when you when you've if you ever truly deal with the past um but you know when you start to make really good inroads there you realize that actually this is going to be this is going to be a part of life forever now you know mm. now that i've opened up these gates like i don't ever want to go back to sweeping feelings under a rug anymore
0: Good, good.
1: To, you know, I want to always be feeling the feels and, and be very consciously aware of everything that I'm thinking, feeling. Um, and then, and I guess the next crossroads is, okay, now that I'm aware of what I'm feeling and I'm aware of the thoughts, I'm aware of the traumas, what do I do with that now? Like, do I just keep yeah. it myself? Um, yeah. be aware of it? Or, you know, is there another part to the piece, which is if I start sharing this, Maybe it's through a journal to start. Maybe then it's speaking to my close friends and my family. Maybe it's then starting a podcast one day and actually being able to talk about these things with a global platform and not worry about what the world might think. And I guess that's where I'm at now. And I have been for a number of years now, which is like, I don't, (laughs) I don't want to, I don't want to keep anything in, you know, like it it feels better for me to, to share things out loud. Um, yeah, yes, like I definitely feel resistance sometimes. Sometimes there's something where I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I want to share this. Should I share this? And yeah. then you lean into it and you're like, all right, I'm going to try it. And it always nine, nine times out of 10 feels a lot better. And I feel myself progressing as a human, as a human being, you know, so I guess in, in response to the question, that's where I'm at. Yeah
0: i have so many questions ed a um can you tell my audience who's just met you now just where you grew up it sounds like you grew up in a house where feelings and expression was not necessarily um you know first and foremost so where did you grow up and who were some influences that you know inspired you to kind of be who you are today
1: yeah so i mean i grew up in hong kong um and that's where i am now that's been home forever and i very much associate hong kong with home um, I have two amazing parents who did absolutely everything they could to raise myself, my brother, and my sister to be the best people we could be. Um, they have interesting stories. You know, both of my parents grew up. Um, you know, they weren't born into affluent families. Uh, they have I wouldn't call it a rags to riches story, but you know, they worked very, very hard at a young age. Didn't go to university, put themselves into the business world young, and just kind of grinded grinded their way through the ranks and mm. got to a point where, you know, they were in their own eyes. And I think in many people's eyes, very successful business people. Um, they both very much embodied exercise and health as a part of their well-being. And I think just mm-hmm. the, those two things combined, like a, a tough upbringing with hard post-war World War II uh, parents um, grew into a world where like, you know, you've got to grind to the stone and and make yourself something. Um, you know led to two very hardworking people um, who mm-hmm. never said no to anything perhaps an element of people pleasing mm-hmm. in the nicest way possible I don't mean that as an insult uh, but people pleasing just because the nature of the jobs uh-huh. that they were in um, and mm-hmm. you know as a result in the way in the way that probably we were raised it was like you can do anything and it's like weakness is almost shameful um boys don't cry type thing mm. um and none of these things were said oh directly. geez yeah yeah you know none of these things were di- said directly and, I, and yeah. honestly when I, when I say all this it sounds like it sounds like it's I'm 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 I'm, I'm slating the way that I was brought up but actually there were so many amazing things that came from that uh you know there were so many amazing things that came from that you know that I think that led to both me and my brother having very successful sporting careers uh being able to you know be a young entrepreneur and get through some very very hard times and always persevere through it. But of course, there were costs. There were costs to it as well. Right. Um. You know, the sports that we played. Was yeah. Big. We both played rugby. That was our main sport. And rugby is a very, it's a very yeah. massive sport, right? We don't talk about emotions. It's all about toughness and <laughs> rugby culture, which is just like it doesn't have a definition. I would say, but uh, in England, uh, we would call it like lad culture so lad culture is all about it's about mm. drinking it's about sleeping with as many people as possible it's about uh you know mm. laughing at others misfortunes all these things again sounds crazy but that's what bonded the rugby circles you know and so that was my i mean it's 20, 23 25 years
0: yeah um. So I want to go back to something real quick. You said, you know, you were like talking about your childhood and you're like, oh, it sounds this way. But like, I, I think both can exist. I think you can have incredible, hardworking, loving parents who were like pretty much committed to just the grind and the hustle and showed you how to do that. Like they they didn't talk about it necessarily. It sounds like they were like, I'm going to show you mm-hmm. how to build and and to live in Hong Kong is no joke. Like, you know, there's so many factors there economically, socially, like. It's not a it's not for the faint of heart to live in to live and work in Hong Kong. I don't think, um, especially back then, right? and and then, but also, like, you know, th- there was there was something too that is important for us, I think, as adults to to also be like, and there were things I didn't learn. I didn't learn how to express, and it doesn't negate that the parents or the family wasn't amazing. I mean, I had incredible parents too, right? and and yet, I didn't also see certain things. I saw a lot of people pleasing. I saw a lot of you know, uh, struggle and conflict, but the love was there. And so I think it's important, right. For us to realize that both, both shaped us. And I'm curious where you said they were people pleasers. I'm curious did that. Is that something you picked up or you feel you've dabbled in over the years?
1: 100%. Yeah. You know, my, my, (laughs) my parents would have, tell tell us more. Yeah. So they were, they were, they were very social creatures. Um, so we would have Every Christmas, we would have you know seventy yeah. people invited around the house, and we'd have like this big schmoozing fest where everyone got drunk and socialized and had a good time. But we would actually have these parties, kind of like every couple of months, my parents would host some big party at our apartment. And Hong Kong apartments aren't small, so seventy people in an apartment is is a it's a it's a tight gathering. Um, but I would always just you know watch my mum and my dad, my dad especially, just kind of be like the life and soul of the party. You know, he would kind of like be center stage Mm -hmm. uh, with a wine glass in his hand like going around to everyone cracking a joke cracking a gag you know making people smile Um, and you know I would just be an observer throughout all of this uh, as a as a young kid and then when I got to about yeah um, I was like okay it's my turn it's my turn to step into that role now and uh, so you know I wasn't old enough to drink but I'd ask ah. oh dad, you know could I have a glass of wine I won't even really drink it I just want to walk around with a glass of wine in my hand like you guys and I would be kind of like the kids schmoozing and you know bonding with the animals. <laughs> like and again like a lot of really great things came out of that it meant that I was I, I built confidence and comfort speaking with people a lot older than me because you know when I eventually started my coaching business at the age of 20 I was coaching people 40 50 year olds on my first day of work and, and feeling confident with it Um, But, you know, when I look at when I look back at the conversations that were taking place, you know, with my parents and and then with myself, it was very, very superficial. It was like, how are you doing? Let's talk about the sport. Let's talk about the weather Mm. This conversation. And I think that way of communicating then embedded itself in adulthood for me. So that was a lot of my relationships with friends uh, in secondary school moving on to university especially i think that's where it really reached like a a climax for me where i've you know moved to a new country felt like i had to like reinvent myself and build a whole new friendship connection yeah very very superficial conversation so never really experienced deep relationships um and i think i embodied a lot of like Mm. uh avoidant relationships i would say you know i would especially with you know in intimate relationships i'd always keep an arm's distance uh would never would never get too close to them yeah Uh, and there's, you know, I've done a lot of exploration around that and why I think I did that. Um, but yeah, the people pleasing part, <laughs> course, and it was just, you know, it was all about wanting to be loved. And I guess, you know, what I think about that now, yeah, um, because yeah, I do still catch myself falling back into that sometimes. You know, I feel like the urge to want to people, sure, of into, course, you ask yourself in the moment, and you're like, okay, of course, do I want to? Do of I want course. to do that? Do I want to do that? Or do I want to? Um, do I want to not? Do yeah. It? But really, really like the way I define it now, is like it's abandoning yourself with the goal of pleasing someone else. And I just don't, you know, the idea yeah. of abandoning uh, myself. Yeah, it's just not something that resonates with me anymore. You know, so, and, and that's only I can only say that with confidence yeah. because I know who I am. You know, I've done I've done the work, I've put in the hard yeah. yards, I'm gonna continue to put in the hard yards until the day that I die. Uh, but I have more of a clarity as to that's who right. What I am what I believe in, what my values are, what are my priorities? So, and, and when you know those things, it becomes a lot easier to not people please. It becomes a lot easier to say no. Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't think one is yeah. able to do yeah. without the other.
0: Um. So uh, do you follow Brene Brown at all? I
1: do. Massive She's massive. like an
0: right. organizational psychologist. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Courage yeah. over comfort
1: is um, one of my, one of my she... values.
0: That's right. She um She's a powerhouse. And one time I heard her on a podcast and she said, you know, people pleasers, she goes, if we're really honest, people pleasers are liars. <laughs> like they're actually just lying, you know, like they're sacrificing themselves for the good, what, what they hope is the good of others. But usually people pleasing does result in both people actually not getting what they want. <laughs> because when we abandon ourselves in any sort of ask or request or Compromising our integrity, our values, which again, this is the hour by hour task of being inhuman. Like, you don't do it once and you're set. You have to constantly practice, I think, sharpening the sense of showing up for yourself. You know, other people suffer. They don't actually get a chance to do what they need to do or really get to know you, right? Like, like your partner or your friends, whomever, like, they don't actually get to know you, which is, which is actually hurtful to them. (laughs) Like, you know, they don't they don't get to show up for you the right way. And it it's, it's hard. I I think that one of the things I've learned in the concept of people pleasing is that I generally might go into people pleasing because uh, some level of fear in the room or in the conversation, and then I'll kind of go into a moment of freeze, you know, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. We have like a nervous system response. So I've, I've tracked myself over the years. I don't fight a lot. I don't, Run a lot. I'll stay in really uncomfortable situations. I've learned to do that growing up as the youngest of seven kids. (laughs) I've been in a lot of loud rooms and lots of yelling. I know how to stay there, but I'll freeze and I'll kind of get real quiet. I'll show no affect and I'll kind of like look down. And, you know, it's very subtle. You know, no one really notices it unless they're watching me. But I've learned to observe when I go into like a freeze mode and i I, i've learned ways to work with that but but i I people please less when i'm aware of my nervous system response to people crowds requests things you know wanting more you know um so does that how does that land for you do do you have a sense of how you respond when you feel like you're in threat or fear or
1: yeah yeah actually the opposite to you (laughs) which is funny you know your your response is yeah Freezing and going into yourself. My my natural response is like I make. I guess I guess something that will one of the fears I have is the fear of silence. And what silence represents Mm. to you, silence represents that I'm not interesting to the other person. And therefore, if there's a moment of silence in the conversation, that Mm. means that this person's not. Essentially, what it boils down to is they don't like me. Because I can't hold a conversation, and so my response in that social moment uh, is actually just to make noise. <laughs> I don't mean random noises, but it's just to blabble or huh. talk, talk about nothing and everything.
0: <laughs> yeah, um,
1: and you know, not even be conscious of the words that I'm saying. And you know that. So that was my response, and I can really see it now in others. Yeah, you know, because you know, I have created so much awareness around that being my response. And now when I see it in other people and I see them, mm. I kind of, I empathize with them deeply straight away because I'm just like, oh, I think, I, I think I know where you're at right now. And then, you know, if I'm, if I'm the other person in the conversation, I'll do everything I can yeah. to, put, to put that person at ease, to make them know, Hey, you don't have to fill the silence. Uh, you know, it's totally okay to not have to say anything right now. Like I'm still in yeah. company. Um, so yeah, that's interesting that we were kind of opposites in that sense. Yeah.
0: That's so, it's so interesting to think about that, like not being comfortable with silence or stillness. I find a lot of my clients have a very hard time with stillness just, and I think most Western America just has a hard time because we're inundated with like, you know, notifications and, you know, texts and buzz and TikToks, whatever. And I, I do think people have a very hard time with, it's almost like our nervous system does not know what to do. We don't know how to interpret the space. We don't know how, literally what to do with it, right? Because we've always been fed things. Um uh, I had a thought there, uh, I was talking to a client of mine and she's like a CEO of a consulting company. And we were talking a lot about communication and I, I find, and I, I'm curious, Ed, about you. We mimic, I think, as we grow older, the way we speak, the cadence, the tone, the, you know, inflection that we use mimics exactly what we did at a young age to survive in a conversation. So for me as a young kid, I learned if I'm not loud and fast with what I got to say, You know, I only had a couple seconds (laughs) to get the attention at the dinner table of nine people. So, or I just wouldn't be heard. So I learned to talk real fast and say things, and you know, and and that's how I learned how to communicate because it was my way of finding a seat at the table, right? Anywho, so I'm learning now, right? As I speak with and to people, is to just pace myself, and I find that to be really, really interesting because. Once you learn your, literally your nervous system response to fear, and then you learn how you communicate, you're like, oh, I, I did that then to survive. I don't have to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. So jumping to one of my clients, um, she grew up in a similar environment to me. And when she goes to networking events, um, you know, what do you do? Right. She kind of goes off for four minutes, just nonstop. Well, I do this and this and this and this. And we said, okay, so we, we paused, we talked about it a little bit. I learned this from my business coach years ago. She said, she goes, just give them, give them one line like slow down and give them one line. And I, I just, I'm curious what you think about this, but with my client, I talked about this and and I said, well, I would just say, I, I help people reduce drama. And I would just pause and like, wait for the other person to be like, drama, what do you mean? What kind of drama? And then it becomes a conversation versus like a pitch or, an, you know, like a, a talking at someone. And I guess we're kind of traversing into this concept of communication, but I think it all does relate to like, again, patterns we saw young and like, I, I'm learning to, I'm relearning and unlearning how to communicate all the time when I find I want to fill the space, like you said. So,
1: Yeah, I resonate deeply with that. Um, I think you probably got a pretty good idea of naturally uh, the, how I communicated in this world, which was, like you said, very fast, uh, a lot of words, very surface level conversation. Um, and yeah, the most challenging times now, like you said, are in those like busy busy room with lots of people you don't know um so you don't have any deep relationships Mm. when you start then then it's like okay so how are you going to operate now ed like are you just going to go back to that kid in the room Mm. with 50 50 adults around you and just smooth and give everyone a little bit of nothing or are you going to actually just try and create some deep communication so i I basically Mm -hmm. as a challenge every time and the interesting thing is yeah just last night I was invited back to my old secondary school. You know, I graduated oh, almost 20 years ago. And, you know, I was I was invited back to be um, mm-hmm. a guest speaker uh, at the sports awards ceremony, which we do. They have annually every year. And it's the second time I've done this. Uh, and I'm bringing this up because it comes to a few things. Number one, the first thing I thought about when I was asked to be the presenter and to do a speech, because one of our, our teachers was leaving after 23 years of service, a guy who had a lot of big impact on me, was, okay, is this mm. really in line with my priorities? Like, I know that public speaking, uh, it's a hard ask. Like, you know, you're speaking in front of a really big audience, like, there's going to be some stress, there's going to be some nerves, like, do I want to put that on my plate right now? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think over the last few years, I have actually said, right. of, said no to a lot more public speaking opportunities that I used to just because I know you know it's like does this really align with what I want to be doing and I think really bring me fulfillment but I said yes because you know this guy has just given me so much the school would give me so much and I felt like I wanted to give back um so then the next challenge was okay I'm going to be now stepping Mm -hmm. into the school where I'm going to see lots of teachers that I knew lots of teachers that I don't know how are you going to handle yourself and and these are actually the challenges this exact mm. challenge of being in a busy room of people I don't know is actually one of my one of the challenges that I I enjoy the most at the moment at this point in my life, because it's a challenge to myself. You know, like am I gonna, are you gonna abandon yourself, Ed? Or are Good. you gonna be true to who you really are? Um and I think the way that I operate now in those spaces, because I think in my job, I'm i I'm in that environment quite a lot. You know, we just ran, we run a lot of athlete camps where we have 40 to 50 people. Mm come to us and like you know there's always a welcome dinner there's always a closing dinner yeah 50 people you don't know and you connect connecting with them all weekend is that I just ask a lot more questions and I listen a lot more and I think that's just something I do a lot more in life so it's less about mm. me doing the talking or me having mm. to do the sales pitch or me doing the who am I what do I do and I'm actually just kind of I just ask and I listen so I spend a lot less time talking now and a lot more time just listening to people and like learning, learn, just genuinely like learning from other people. I think it's fascinating. Um, yeah, yeah. Every question that yeah. I ask, for every person I ask, like, yeah, every conversation I have, and every question I ask is an opportunity for me to learn something about someone else. And honestly, it's one of the things that makes me love podcasting. So yeah. Already in twenty minutes, I've learned a lot of new language around things that I think about all the time just by having this conversation with you. So, yeah, what, what do you what do you take from that?
0: Well, I'm curious of so two things. First of all, is it, it? It sounds to me you're enjoying communication more. You're enjoying connecting with people more. It sounds like the pressure's off you, and you're actually like in a space with peers who are equal to you, right? Who have equal interest, equal value, equal human, you know, uh, introspection to bring. And you're not the star of the show. And that seems like just by the way you're explaining it, more enjoyable. No.
1: Yeah, that's perfect. That's a perfect way to put it.
0: Yeah. And my other question is, I was going to ask you, how do you do it? Like, so, um, okay, asking questions, good tool, good technique. Um, I find a lot of people when they get in public situations, like school, work events, social, just going to a bar, you know, like, again, sort of wanting to fill the space and, you know, or maybe they have social anxiety or they just, they feel like they don't have anything interesting to say. Like, I'm always just interested in people's techniques of you know for for you, your high performance coach, your growth mindset. Every day is a day to get better. Every day is a day to work on the human experience, right? Not just fitness, but the human experience. And I guess you know, for a lot of people listening, like they're maybe they're not performance coaches, but they do want to get better at connecting with humans. So what are some tools or things that you do when you're in that room? You feel yourself maybe going back into an old pattern, wanting to dominate the conversation or bring cool things up to fill the space. Like what do you do with your mind and body to kind of, break that pattern.
1: Hmm, yeah. That's a great question. I think a really hard question as well. I've got so many things on the top of my mind. Uh, I, I think number one, what it really comes back to is what we really talked about, which is Ed, you're not here to people, please. And I have to remind myself that, you know, this, this social interaction mm. is not about me trying to be loved by everyone because You know, the blabbering Ed who just wanted to have a little conversation with every person was operating out of a fear of not being loved by everyone. And so now when I come into those situations, I remind myself Mm. that that is not the intention anymore. The intention is not to be liked by everyone. The intention is just to Mm. speak, ask questions, listen. And if people love me because of that, then fantastic. If they don't, that's also totally okay. Mm. You know, like our vibes just connect Better with certain people and less with other people. And I'm well aware of that. Uh, so the the goal is no longer to leave that room being the most popular. Person. Totally. I think just that change in mindset really takes a lot of the pressure off um, communicating in a certain way. Do you know what I mean?
0: It sounds like it's a big uh, unlearning for you. It's just how to navigate space with people. And um, I think, you know, it's, it's admirable. It's also fun. I like to sort of operate by this principle of am I committed to being right or liked or am I committed to learning any given moment? am I committing to, uh, am I more committed to being right to being liked, to having control? or am I just more committed to learning? I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think both can happen. but I do find that people, again, we kind of go back into our, our habits like I just want to own the room, I want to fill the space, I want to have the most interesting story. And I have actually I heard someone say something once is we rarely ever in a room talk about the most interesting thing. We rarely talk about the most interesting thing. We recycle in conversation. We recycle the same 15 things we've been saying to the same 15 people all week long. And that's why I think people are sad and depressed and lonely, not because they don't have people around them or they can't pick up the phone, but because we're not talking about anything that really matters. It's part of why I started a podcast, too, is I was like, this can't, we can't be talking about the weather you know, uh, debt and our landlord all day long. Like, I'm sorry, like, come on. You know? So I I'd love to hear your thoughts on that too.
1: Yeah. I love, I love the way you put that, you know, that it's not about being right or wrong and being the most liked, but it's about learning. And I guess that's that like encapsulates it perfectly. And I'm going to, I'm going to use that language now, Elisa, when I think, when I think about this stuff, it's just another opportunity for learning. Um, But, you know, going back to your question, Mm -hmm. like, what are some other things that I do in that situation? Um, I think, you know, being aware of my, yeah, my autonomic state, you know, you talked about fight or flight. Um, And, you know, we know that, you know, the fight or flight Mm -hmm. state is when, like, heart rate gets a little bit high, blood pressure starts to increase, your palms get a little bit sweaty, your face gets a little flushed. Uh, you know, on the other end of the mm-hmm. spectrum, we have like our kind of rest and digest state. You know, when you're calm, you're kind of in that flow state, like you're not really worried about anything. And all day, every day, I'm very consciously aware as to which end of that spectrum I'm I'm in at any moment. Uh, and if I feel myself tipping towards that mm. fight flight state. Uh, you know, like I feel my palms getting a bit sweaty. I feel my my heart rate increase. My my breathing rate is increased. I'll try and bring myself back down as quick as I can. Um, now, there are times in life where you need to be in that state, mm. right? If I'm going to do a heavy back squat and try and hit a new yep. one at max, like I can't be in rest and digest state, relax, because I'm not going to have enough tension to lift that weight. Uh, if I'm playing sport to a high level, yeah. I need to be yeah. in that state, you know, like sometimes the pressure and the stress is good and adrenaline and cortisol is what we need in the moment. Um, but there's a lot of times where I don't want exactly. to be in that state, but my body's putting me there. So I may go into a social situation or a podcast. Like, you know, I've had podcasts where I've had a, a, a big guest on who's got a massive following, a big reputation, and I can feel myself. I'm sitting here on Zoom waiting for their camera to pop up, and I can feel my heart rate like you know, it's like 170 beats a minute. Yeah. I'm like, this is not yep. where I want to be right now. I need to be relaxed and calm, ready to have a conversation. Um, yeah, and, and so I guess yeah. having some strategies in that moment to bring me back into a relaxed state, and often that that's just taking a few breaths. You know, maybe it means just closing my eyes, taking myself to a corner of the room, taking myself to the bathroom in that social situation, and just taking five to 10 really deep breaths, like box breathing always works really well for me. You know, big breath in through the nose, some form of breath,
0: yeah. Hold,
1: slow exhale. And honestly, in like five to ten breaths, I feel calm again. And when totally I'm different. calm, I can go back yeah, into, totally that, into that right. busy room and be like, I can operate at the level I want to operate again. uh because you know, when you're calm, that's when you yeah. that's when you can be present. Often when you get into that high sympathetic state, you're not really present. It's like when you're that's when your thoughts are racing that's when you're starting to think about, does this person like me? Am I being entertaining? How do I look right now? How am I being perceived? What should I say next? Where should I? And as soon as I'm getting, you know, and I realize that I'm not present, it's another thing I think about a lot. How present am I right now? I know that I need to do something to get me back to present because I always operate better when I'm present. What are your thoughts?
0: For sure. For sure. I I have so many thoughts. I want to put a... A plug out there to something you said and that this is a bigger conversation i think we're kind of dancing around the nervous system quite a bit which is so important for frankly what both of us too and anybody listening as a human who wants to have some responsibility for their presence in the world um when we think about the nervous system too one of the things i've unlearned over the last couple of years is that you know someone said to me once like you know just stay calm stay calm and i was like and after i studied some some work about the nervous system and and how we have the parasympathetic, we have the sympathetic, and both are very, very valuable. I mean, sex requires the sympathetic. I mean, giving a TED talk requires a sympathetic. I mean, doing a squat thrust requires a sympathetic. And I think the sympathetic gets really this weird sort of like, you know, uh, taboo around it like, get out of that fight or flight and get into calm. And I think people really, really, really need to understand that they have to be in the sympathetic. It's really important for um, really what we would call a regulated nervous system. Someone said, sent me a post the other day on Instagram. And it was like some, who knows some person quoting, like calm is the goal. And I was, I reposted it. I was like, no, it's not, it's not the goal. It's not actually a regulated nervous system is an expressive nervous system. It's one that goes to a sympathetic state and releases when it's appropriate. Right. Let, let's say the, the voice or the sound or the, the frustration, if we do not release we recycle we 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 actually become people pleasers and i think it's really important that all this actually does connect to performance communication childhood right because as a kid i was taught to to not express i was taught to be quiet to be calm to be still to be good and that shit doesn't serve me <laughs> Not really. I am at my best when I'm expressive and big and free flowing. And of course, there are times like you said really beautifully, that when I get on to talk or when I go into coaching mode with my clients, I absolutely want to be more grounded and present and alert. Um, and that might be a bit more parasympathetic. Depends, you know, uh, but I think it's really important. I also want to give a shout out while I'm on this topic to a guest of mine, Kimberly Johnson. She wrote the book, Call of the Wild. It's specifically dedicated to women, but all humans could really de- could really benefit from it. It. She talks a lot about this beauty of the titration between the sympathetic and parasympathetic and the space that we have to dance between. And I, and I just love her work. So I just want to shout out her uh, her book here.
1: Yeah, I love that. I want to just jump in on that um because you're right you know like life life is a balance it is a dance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic and you know if you take out if you if you even just look, you put us on a sofa and we ask us not to do anything you know the way that our hormones and our body is regulated like cortisol which is really the the main hormone that puts us into the sympathetic state it naturally rises as the, as the sun rises so as the sun is moving mm-hmm. up to the middle of the sky at midday like we are naturally more wired to be in a sympathetic state and as the sun starts to fall mm-hmm. and the moon starts to rise our uh, you know our sympathetic system should down regulate and the parasympathetic system kind of takes over that's totally natural when you can understand yeah. that um yeah. and embody it then it's like you know don't be scared don't be yeah. scared of putting yourself and it's the same idea you know it's why brene brown's quote courage over comfort resonates so deeply with me because it's like if you if you just choose comfort all the time and you just choose easy in your life, like there is no growth. And if you're just happy to just to exist and be the way that you've always been and, and not, you know, venture into new horizons, then okay, like choose comfort and choose calm all the time. And and that's okay. That's just not the life I, I choose to live.
0: Yeah. I'm 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 gonna challenge you a little bit, Ed, you down for that. Yeah, so what what I think is interesting about this conversation is the nuance of growth mindset and this concept of we grow the best out of our growth. We, we have the most growth when we are not in a comfort zone. I think that is nuanced and really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think what people need to understand about it is the nuance. And so some from literally a nervous system perspective, a human physiology perspective, uh, some of our most amazing performances in the ted talk the flow state in the shooting the basketball in the rugby in the the dance and the drawing that is our comfort zone now we didn't always get to be olympic level you know when we were young we had a li- we da- we we dabbled a little bit we had a small growth we had a small comfort zone but we we expanded our comfort zone so i i think actually people want to expand their comfort zone i think physiologically and psychologically we perform best when we're in a space of safety it, let's call it psychological safety And confidence. And then I think we, we, okay, we say I'm really excellent at public speaking, let's say hypothetically, I don't know. (laughs) And I say, but I want to get a little bit better at this in public speaking. So I'm going to stay in my comfort zone of excellence, of genius, of flow. And I'm going to dabble a little bit and try one thing new. And I'm going to expand. So I think that the conversation in the wellness world can be blown up and misunderstood. People think I have to like endure pain and like mm-hmm. do crazy shit to grow. And that's actually not the case. I think, I think like we're kind of saying the same thing, but the the massaging there is really important because for years people take jobs that they're really not equipped for, like tr- truly at all, like shouldn't be in it and they s- struggle and suffer and they don't get the right help or they, you know, they, they stay in a relationship that is, nothing around comfort nothing around safety and and they suffer because they think oh this has to be we we have this world where we think growth can only come with pain and I just don't agree I mm-hmm. think it can come with both and it's it's a bit of a language thing there but I'd love to hear what you think about that
1: yeah no I I, I 100% agree with that you know if it was just about doing shit that scares you all the time um, <laughs>
0: we would be I freaked mean, like, out
1: <laughs> you We know, you know, wouldn't actually probably get good at anything or love anything, or be passionate about anything. So yeah, you're totally right. I think that, I think that, that um, explanation is very, very important. And, you know, just bringing it back to my own story, like there are so many things that I say no to every day that I know are very uncomfortable. And and actually, because they're uncomfortable is why I say no to them. Yeah, because you you know
0: where you are.
1: That's right. You know, that's just not what I want to be doing right now. And yeah, yeah, you're right. I want to be staying within my comfort zone. But I guess, you know, trying to give our, you know, maybe our listeners like a practical example of this is that, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll take yesterday's example, <clears throat> the public speaking event, which was, okay, I don't really want to do this. It's not massively aligned with the things that I want to be doing right now and where I want to be allocating my time. Um, but, you know, I see this as a, it's for a really good cause. And, you know, this is like, this can be my one public speaking thing that I do in the next six months. Uh, that's Okay. And so, you know, in the lead up to this talk, like it is a bit uncomfortable, you know, like I was getting a bit nervous. I was thinking, shit, I haven't really prepared for this talk. Um, Mm. I want to make sure that I do the school and everyone proud. You know, I've been, I'm the only person that's been invited to be a special guest at this award, at this award ceremony. Um, And so, of course, there's like, there's, there's constant uh, questions of doubt. Maybe you should just pull out. I genuinely thought four days before I was like, I might just shoot shoot the organizer mess mm. and say that i'm actually busy because i might actually don't really want to do this anymore um mm. and then in hindsight having completed it you know having put in the work to create the speech and like you actually just said within our within my comfort zone because i i do enjoy public speaking but i actually set myself a challenge yesterday which is i don't want to have a fully prepared speech in front of me instead i'm mm. gonna have some bullet points and i want this to be more of like a step a storytelling um yeah which is going yep. to be challenging for me in front of a really, really big crowd. But I think if I can do it, and if I execute it to a level that I'm happy with, I would level up in my minds as uh, as a public speaker. And so I did it. I, I'm really happy with how I executed it. And I left last night coming home, and I was just so stoked. I was so yeah. happy that I said yes to doing that. I was so happy that I took the challenge to deliver a, a talk in a slightly different way. And I guess... Yeah you know, going back to what you said, like I stayed within my comfort zone. It was not a completely foreign environment. It was a school that I knew very, very well, people that I knew well, it was talking about a subject I knew really, really well, but I took a bit of discomfort within that to do something a bit more challenging. And I came away and I feel like I've leveled up. Um, Yeah. 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 Thank you for sharing that.
0: That's a great example too, of like, you know, knowing that maybe this is like, let's call it lower stakes than maybe uh, global TED talk perhaps in some capacity, although who knows, right? People everyone is always impacted at a talk. But if you if you think about this opportunity as a way to just practice non-scripted bullets, let me just let me just have a conversation and talk to these people. Like that is a great example of um yeah, of expanding your comfort zone and coming away with a new tool. Um, yeah, that's yep. that's incredible.
1: So something I was thinking about when you were talking about the um you know the the fight or flight wrestle digest, the two sympathetic and parasympathetic states uh, and you know, you, what you said, um, about your guests, which is, you know, life is just this constant balancing act between the two. Um, and going back to what you said before that, which was like, don't be afraid of the stress. Don't be afraid of the sympathetic state. You know, a lot of great things happen when you're in that state. And I think that's something that I, that I'm very conscious of every day is trying to get that balance right. So knowing that if I have things that, uh, unintentionally become a little bit stressful
0: Mm -hmm.
1: maybe something happens at work maybe someone hands in their resignation maybe someone has this complaint maybe someone gets injured on the training floor and you know Mm -hmm. these are these unforeseen unforecasted things that come into your day that put you into a state of you know the sympathetic state the, the 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 fight or flight mode. and i'm very aware that too much time spent in fight or flight has some fairly negative consequences yeah. Time. And I think we probably all experience that in life, whether it's in our professional careers and we get to a point where we're miserable, we're depressed and we're burnt out or as athletes, uh, you know, we get to a point where we're also burnt out, but we're injured and we're broken, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and I've experienced both of those many, many times in my profession yeah. and my sporting careers. And that experience has taught me that it's like I need to be better at managing that relationship between how much time I spend in both states. Um, the way that I used to look at it, which I think is like the uh, the cliche, you know, you need to find balance in your life would be, okay, I need to match, if you put it in the simplest way possible, every hour spent in the sympathetic state, I've got to spend an hour in the parasympathetic state. And if I can do that every (laughs) single day, I'll be perfectly balanced. But shit just doesn't work like that, right? And so the way I guess I see it now is that I kind of look at it more as like a season of life. Okay, so I might be able Mm. to go, through a couple of weeks, a couple of months, where I am managing that relationship 50-50 perfectly. But I'm also going to have months, weeks, multiple days, where I am very on the end of the sympathetic fight or flight state. I have days after days, which are high stress as a lot of my plate. I'm very well aware every extra day I spend in that state. You know, I'm getting myself a little bit closer to burnout. I'm getting myself a little bit closer to getting sick getting myself a little bit closer to getting injured. And so I know that, okay, I can do this for a while, but at some point in time, I'm going to have to get myself back to the other end of the spectrum. And maybe that means taking a few days off. Maybe that means having a holiday. Maybe that means giving myself a bit of a digital detox. So rather than thinking hour by hour, a day by day basis, now I'm kind of like looking at the grander picture of life and just making sure that at some point, I've got to try and balance it out as best I can. And that's really like, that's what longevity means to me in many ways. I talk about longevity all the time in the training space, mm. in the professional right. space. It's like the individuals who can get that balance a little bit better in their lives um, are probably the people who are going to be, be doing this for a really, really long time. What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing. Um I was riding my bike the other day in New York, and I thought to myself. I was maybe riding to go to a chiropractic appointment, which is often very restorative and relaxing for me, but just getting there felt stressful, you know, like cars and ambulances and beeping. And I was like, this, this feels antithetical to going to a bodywork session, right? And I just thought to myself, how amazing it is to be a human on this planet and have obviously get the opportunity, right? It's a, It's a huge gift to be alive. But to to be trying to regulate this system, to know the system, to be aware of the system, to regulate the system, like it is a full-time job. Like the next time someone asks me, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a full-time human, like full-time human committed. Like I am a scientist of my own experience because it never ends. I mean, I think, I think, I, I, I just think that I, I would actually say before we get to balance anything, we all have to be acutely aware, like pen and paper. I do this with my clients. When what happens when you're in fight or flight? What are the statements, the beliefs, and the behaviors? And we literally go through, we list it out. Like, w- what are the words you say? Well, I say should a lot. I don't have enough a lot. Um, he's wrong. I'm right. You know, binary thinking. You start to really see the patterns of your language. And then you start to see the patterns of your beliefs. Well, there's no point in trying. And, you know, um, you know, people don't really care anyway. Or, you know, just very defeated thoughts, Um or again, I'm never going to have enough thought there too, or belief. And then we get into behaviors. And so I think that like the more you can literally map it out and I have my clients do this, it is the most important thing. And then you start to reckon with that a little bit. You start to realize most of your life has been in that category of like, um, sympathetic stress, never having enough sort of fear-driven scarcity. Mm -hmm. And I think that, Once we begin to spend many months observing ourselves with like a very critical lens, very loving lens, then we begin to say like, well, which one do I want to feed? You know, it's like they say in like, sort of like the Buddhist texts, like, do we want to feed the anger? We can feed the anger all day long or we can feed the joy, you know, and, and anywho. So I I think, yeah, I think doing an inventory matters and then we get to see if we're willing. I I think wanting and willing are very different things. I want um, to work out every day. Some days I'm not willing. And how do I know that? Because I didn't work out yesterday, you know? And so I think there's there's something that has to happen around self deep self-awareness that people often get to when they're sort of putting pen to paper around this stuff, so.
1: Yeah, I love it. Can I, can I ask you, Lisa, you know, when you're asking your clients to do that inventory, yeah. where you're asking them to write down, you know, what they say and how they act when they're in a certain state, How how do you help them? become aware that they're even in that state in the first place?
0: Um. Well, generally people come to me because they're in some level of drama in the workplace, right? So my, my work, I basically help people reduce workplace drama. Um, and it's usually starting always with themselves. Like I have drama with my boss. I know that I need to change. Help me do that. I have drama with my team or... I have a career issue conflict and I don't want to be in this job anymore. Um, and, and obviously trends transfers always to the personal realm, but people usually come to me knowing that something needs to shift. Um, and, but they don't, I, I, I think Ed, people have a good amount of self-awareness to know that I need coach or I need support or I need to go to the gym. But I, that's where I think coaching is so, so important for people. And that's why I have a coach too. Like I have people in my life who help give me a mirror so how I do it is we study together. I, I I teach the 15 Commitments to Conscious Leadership. We study, we read together, and I help them understand through obviously like literal activities, a pen to paper. You know, show me the last three times you were in fight or flight. Walk me through. Two minutes on the clock. Just talk about it. And what, what were you thinking? What were you doing? What were you believing? And we actually map it out. And they're like, oh, shit, I've been doing that my whole life. You know, and so you start to see patterns in – your personal life, your work life, but it does require pen to paper. We can't just be meta about it, you know, and be like, Oh yeah, I know. I'm always, you know, wanting to be right in the workplace. We got to kind of see how it shows up. I think Sharon Salzberg, one of my favorite meditation teachers always says we have to be a scientist of our own human experience. No one else will like we have to. So I think you, I'm sure you do the same work, right? Within fitness and in training is like, it's not just general, like you have to personalize it. You have to make it very specific to people um, or else change won't happen. You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I totally agree. I guess at least I never really asked you what, what, I mean, just hearing you speak about all of this, you know, clearly it's something that you're super knowledgeable about and very passionate about and have a lot of experience in, but what, what was a catalyst that, that moved you from being the English teacher to being a coach of, you know, you, and you class yourself as, you know, you, you coach <laughs> unconscious, uh, conscious leadership, the conscious leadership coach, like what brought you to this shift in your career?
0: yeah Well, it was that first shift when I had that car accident, I started to really embrace nutrition and mindfulness and meditation really strongly, right? Because it was my main prescription for health at the time. And I I was giving that to myself. And then I spent about 10 years in the realm of nutrition and mindfulness, teaching, coaching people. And in that time, I started to work for a medical health tech startup. And at the startup, we were giving great care to patients, really helping trans- transform the way that Western medicine was approaching chronic disease. And I was really proud of the care we gave. But internally, the employees were really in distress. Uh, lots of drama, lots of uh, maybe gaslighting, manipulation, dishonesty, just like you know, human behavior, frankly. It wasn't like this place was radically bad. It was just that there was a breach of integrity you know, in most leadership positions. And I started to realize how much of an art it was to be a leader, to be conscious, to be truly genuine with your words and your actions. Like, I started to realize that that is not the norm, actually. And I realized that I wanted to solve for that. So I've kind of always been the person, Ed, where like, you know, again, I thought I would be an English teacher for 40 years and retire. I have never been that. Um, I keep pivoting and changing based off the needs of the people around me. So when I was in that job about five years ago now, I started to teach the executive team and the leadership team the principles of conscious leadership. And so it, w- what I would say it is, is that it's a, it's a method that allows us to understand our reactivity, uh, come to peace and acceptance with our reactivity, our patterns, our drama patterns, let's call them. And then learn tools so that we can shift out of the drama patterns. That's all. And sometimes we can't shift and we have to settle into some deep level of self-acceptance about our stubbornness with our brother or our drama with our ex, you know, like sometimes we, we can't shift out of the drama, but, um, the, the conscious leadership principles, really there's 15 commitments. And one of them is responsibility. Um, my second favorite one is feeling your feelings to completion. Um, and I dabble in a lot of the other ones, obviously with my clients. So, it's it's breaking drama patterns and and doing it with more curiosity and play about the human spirit. It's not about like goal setting. It's about like introspection and really creating a life. It's almost like rewriting your operating system. You know, like it's a commitment to rewrite your operating system in a way that is more caring, more loving, more curious.
1: So I think what's interesting about that is so you have leaders coming to you who are saying, how can I essentially be a better leader to the people that I am that I lead? And yep. your, the protocol is we need to do mm-hmm. self-introspection and that's essentially what's going to enable you to be a greater leader. Big time. So, you know, serve yourself first and that's going to allow you to serve others. Is that is that essentially what we're saying?
0: That's right, yeah.
1: And why is it? Yeah, you, I, I would say
0: that all team, organizational coaching leadership it I, I would say, yeah all all leadership on teams begins with the individual knowing how to lead themselves more lovingly, more consciously. so I, I think that's where I begin with people. And then they say, oh, but I need my boss to change or I need my team to change. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, this is an inside job. And so we're going to spend as many months or years as we can to shift and really examine why you're triggered by your team, why you're triggered by them being one minute late to a meeting. Like, what does that mean for you? What's your relationship to control? And so we really do get pretty specific and pretty detailed with, I guess, people's neuroses and habits and patterns. Um, But yeah, it's amazing.
1: Yeah. I guess I I can, I resonate again. I I feel like I'm saying that a lot on this podcast. I resonate, but I am really resonating with all the things you're you're talking about and reflecting my own journey. Um, But as a young leader, it was all about trying to, yeah, I guess, change others. Um, And I would put a lot of the, the tension that I would feel in the workplace or the lack of productivity that I would sense in my team to being like, you, well you just need to be more you need to be better you need to do x differently and it wasn't until yeah yeah since yeah. i started my well, own. well it was bringing
0: journey. up something for you i'm sure right
1: yeah well 100 but I, I didn't have that awareness at the time to know that it was it was bringing up something in me but it wasn't until right i started my own introspection and my own journey which i just honestly quietly went along alone you know i didn't I didn't really know that there was never thought that there was experts out there who could help me. So it was just burying myself in books and reading every self-help book on the planet to try and figure out how I could be better and how I could be different. And, you know, as I was going on that journey, I always talk about this. It's almost like every self-help book I picked up every page. I would just be like, yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's me. Oh, and here's the solution, how to change it. Amazing. (laughs) Uh, so you know, I got like I I, I kind of created this mild addiction. Yeah. Years where I just was couldn't wait to pick up the next book, um, but you know that's where all the changes started to happen within my team and my organization. It was a deeper I went on my own journey, the more introspection I did, uh, the mm. better my relationships were with my team members. Big time. Uh, the better I was able to communicate and just like, yeah, I guess those two things at the crux of every organization is what what can help create amazing organizations. Build better relationships and learn to communicate better.
0: That's, that's it. And I would say that those are definitely top. And I would say like that reduces the tension. You know, we started this podcast talking about withholding, you know, like if you withhold your feelings, ideas, and thoughts to your team or to your partner, business partner, there, there isn't creative energy. There isn't aliveness. You know, there's a sense of one of the things I love the most, uh, a lot of times clients come to me and I'm sure you see this too in the fitness world. I'm curious, just, what you think about this, but my take is when people come to me with tension, um, they feel stuck in their life. They feel like they're looping and circling. Right. I think (laughs) breathing techniques are amazing. Go work out. Amazing. Good. Absolutely regulate the body, but something needs to be said. Part of me, what I say to people is tell the truth. Like, what are you not, what are you not admitting? what are you afraid to feel like i think that when we can really get down to it all this again you said it before like aches and pains and injuries and like sadness and you know just rumination and we're we're not saying what needs to be said and i think again that's that's our responsibility to regulate this mind and body is to actually say what needs to be said and and obviously find the time and place to do that but i think it's the best state management technique on the planet is learning how to reveal Uh, what matters most.
1: Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, knowing, knowing how much traumas and feelings can, can build up and eat away at you physiologically as well as mentally. I think that's a bit that people struggle to connect the dots on. It's like, how does my knee pain have anything to do with the, (laughs) the stress that I'm experiencing at work? You know, and I think it's, I see it all the time. I've been to, I've had all the MRIs, I've seen all the doctors, I've been to all the right. physicians, I have nothing physiologically wrong with me, yet I'm in chronic pain. Mm. And I think, you know, straight away, the the question in my head is like, okay, so what else, what else is happening in your life? That's not, yeah. maybe, maybe not a physical thing. Maybe like you said, it's this big you know, time. What are you withholding that's manifesting? Mm-hmm. And this is a hard conversation to have. <laughs> um, because people come to me as you know as a strength and conditioning coach and it's like, give me the physical prescription to fix A or to fix B. And you know, I think when this conversation starts to come around, which is okay, you've tried everything physically, seen all the doctors, you've seen all the physios, you've done every rehab protocol, but the pain is still there. Perhaps could it be a trapped emotion? Could it be a something? You know, and then suddenly it's like, whoa, this is a little bit woo-woo. This is like, this is not. This is not yeah. what I've come to you for, you know, like, okay, I'm going to go back over to the next doctor and it, and I'll even, you know, just on behalf of myself admit that it's, it's a hard thing to talk about. Like there isn't the data out there. There isn't the science papers. There isn't the the research that's saying like, this is what could potentially be happening. And this is why you need to start addressing Well,
0: I would say there is the research. Um, uh, a lot of trauma therapists talk and write about this quite a bit. I mean, the body keeps a score is a very incredible book. book. It's Amazing. yeah. Like there is science about that. I mean, I think when we understand the nervous system and the body, I think that the general public doesn't understand that, but to your point, you're right. But I think, yeah, there's so much data. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, I guess, what,
1: I guess what's hard is that it's not so much that there isn't the data and the research, but it, it's more that if my knee is hurting, I need to see that the MRI says the meniscus is torn.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We Knees like present. to see things. Yeah. Data. I need to
1: see that the cartilage is degenerating. And mm. it's, I think, I think that's where so many of our minds are wired. Totally and I totally understand why. That's just the yeah. day and age that we live in. And that's what, you know, the medical field puts out there. Um, that's what doctors are for, you know, for yeah. for for fixing pain um and putting a band-aid on issues which you know i'm very grateful for i think they do amazing jobs most of the time um but that is certainly the mindset set that people live in and i do i know i mean the reason i feel so passionate about this is because i have read the research and and i know and i've experienced the impact that it's had on me because i was that person i was yeah. that person i had every single mri so every single doctor yet i would keep on breaking uh and not know why and now mm. when i look back on the times where I would break and have all these major operations on my body as an athlete I was always dealing with something big uh, yeah energetic time yeah energetic big time. yeah emotional spiritual like there was something I can connect a dot in almost every single instance as to why something might have happened
0: So I'm curious for you, I'm thinking about this topic of unlearning, right? We're kind of talking around it right now, but you, you coach athletes, you run a gym in Hong Kong, you have clients, you obviously have a podcast, you are pretty nonstop in terms of helping others. What are you unlearning right now? Since so much of your life is giving, supporting others, like showing up for their mind and body, your coaches, the people who work for you, like, what are you unlearning in your process uh, these days?
1: so so much uh, so much all the time help direct me give me me another nudge in another direction
0: well it's kind of like the I guess on learning right it's like not like should I don't like I think should is a preference in this example like I know I should be doing less of this but I'm not willing yet I'm still committed to doing six high intensity workouts a week when I know my body should be doing three so mm. I would say that person is unlearning, right? Like what their body can handle and why they're committed to the endorphin high. Maybe you know, I don't know. But so I guess it's like, what are you kind of wrestling with these days?
1: Yeah, okay. I love, I love, I love the way that you put that. What are you wrestling with? Um, I think the, the the exercise part. I think that's worth talking about because I do speak about this a lot. Um, because you know, I I wore an athlete. Hat for many, many years of my life. That was my identity. I was a professional mm-hmm. rugby player. I transitioned into the sport of CrossFit with the goal of trying to make it to the CrossFit games. Um, and whilst I was coaching on the side, I identified more as the athlete. That mm. brought me the plaudits, that brought me the recognition, um, that brought me the speaking engagements. And, you know, pursuing that and obnoxiously not listening to my body ended up with me having a lot of issues Uh, not only in my rugby days but even in my crossfit days Like chronically burnt out um chronically injured chronically in pain Um, yeah there was a big unlearning process there that had to happen Mm -hmm. it's like this isn't good
0: Uh, yeah
1: this is this certainly doesn't feel healthy i know that I know that elite level sports are not necessarily healthy, but this really doesn't feel healthy. And the, the other elite athletes that I'm surrounded by, like they're not suffering in the way that I'm suffering. So a lot had to change there. And so just on the training part, that then I then embarked on a journey of of going from basically overcooking every workout and smashing mm-hmm. myself into the ground to then basically chronically undercooking every workout. Um, so where I'm at right now is mm-hmm. having you know, especially during the pandemic where, you know, the priority most definitely wasn't um, my own training. I still trained five days a week. You know, that's a commitment and a habit that I'm very much ingrained and I love doing. It. It's a highlight of my day. Every time I journal at night, one of the highlights of my day was the training session and the movement that I did and I love mm-hmm. it. Um, but, you know, having competed again last year to, you know, in the CrossFit Open, which is this global competition that happens every year, I kind of like felt this like fire in me light again where i was like mm. you know what i've i used to this used to be me like I used to just be the hard charging athlete that used to just mm. go hard all the time science competitions put myself out there and then i broke myself so badly that i basically went to the other end of the spectrum
0: yeah, yeah. Staff,
1: i continued to train but i took yeah. it really really easy and maybe at the cost of that my development um and my progress in the training space which is still really important to me like i'm I want to be the fittest, strongest version of myself until the day that I die. Um, but maybe mm. I haven't actually been pushing myself hard enough. So like going back to that sympathetic, parasympathetic, I was like all on, all in on this end of the spectrum. Then I kind of went to this end of the spectrum. And now right. I'm kind of like in that middle ground again where I'm like, you know what? I I do think doing harder physical tasks is important mentally and physically. Yeah. So where I'm at right now with that is like, I'm trying to... I'm trying to do harder things in the training space again um cool. but whilst always being conscious that like at the end of the day health and longevity is the goal so I'm not willing yeah. to sacrifice short-term health I'm not willing to be in pain anymore I don't want to be picking up injuries but I think I've got a bigger buffer to play with than I than I give myself so that's one mm. big unlearning on process that's constantly changing forever and I yeah. think it always will do uh, the other one is because you use it as an example, but it has been, you know, on the forefront of my mind is this concept of how much do I want to work? Um, and you're right. Like I do, I do do a lot of things. Um, but I also, uh, this so this is a wrestle. This is a wrestling match that's always taking part in my mind is part of me loves the idea of working for, working four days a week, having a slow morning,
0: mm.
1: finishing at 4 p.m every day and having a lifestyle that allows me to get out in nature and explore and travel a little bit more. Part of me also knows that everything that I do in my job right now, I genuinely love. There actually isn't anything that I have to do apart with which is part of my work that I don't enjoy doing, which I then also see as a massive privilege. It's like, I get to act like everything, everything I do with my job, I, I really genuinely enjoy. So the wrestling matches where's the sweet spot. Like you know, I work six days a week. Really, like, and even on the Sunday, I'll I'll probably still find myself doing a little bit of something. Um, but knowing that I also don't know if that's really what I want. A mm. big part of this, um, that I struggle with is, um, expectation from others. So perhaps there's, there's still people pleasing in there, deeply embedded, yeah. which yeah. is that okay. I'm the boss. You know, I'm the guy who's worked all these years to build this amazing company. Like I need to be seen to be working hard. And that's something that I used to think about all the time. And I've really taken the pressure off myself a lot these days, but it's still hard. You know, I still see it. I still see it prevalent within my culture, within my team. Sometimes I make a joke and say, oh, you know, like, you know, I'm just here slaving away. I'm grinding or I'm just here, you know. I was in at 7 a.m. and I left at 7 p.m. and I'm like, hey guys,
0: it's such a weird it.
1: we've got to cut that, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: It's not, yeah, it's, it's not about the quantity. Like at the end of the day, I say to my team all the time, it's like, I just want you to love what you do and I want you to do things you're really you're really good at doing. Now yeah. if that means you work 12 hours a day because that's your choice, then amazing, own it. Like I love that. But if that means right. that you want to work five hours a day and have afternoons off, like I also love that. And twelve-hour yeah. guy isn't better than the five-hour guy. You just had, you just you just value different things, and that's totally okay.
0: I uh, I love your unlearnings. I resonate with both of them very much, and I think that everyone here listening really will resonate with the the latter, especially just just because I'm sure people in my world are just thinking about how much do I work and who is it for, and and how what am I trying to prove, and you know four days, five days, you know if you think about the five day five-day work week, right? Nine to five. It was started from the agriculture system, mm-hmm. farming. It was when the sun came up and went down. That's that's how we decided humans should be working 40, 50 hours a week. That's actually not relevant for most people. And with AI and all these things, it may not be necessary. And I think, and I actually just too empathize because I struggle too with that. I'm like, I, there are days I don't have to do five hours of work. I actually said that to someone recently. I said, I've had my best year in business in a long time this past year. And I said, sometimes I work four or five hours a day, max. And this person, their eyes like popped out of their head. They're like, what? And I was like, yeah, (laughs) like I get to be a human all day long, first of all. But like, what, why did we have it ingrained in our minds that nine or 10 hours was relevant. I just think it's the most crazy chaotic thing that I think it's capitalism. I think it's consumerism. I think it's, we got to consume more is better. Bigger is better. Faster is better. And I think that that's something that our we can't intellectually know. Like, I think people in this podcast listening are like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. You can get done what you need to get done in four days, take three days off to travel, volunteer, you know, build something, but it, it's deeper than that. And so, I mean, to anyone listening, I, I work with it too. I'm unlearning it too. And, um, I'm way better at it now than I was two years ago, um, but man, it's a thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I, you know what? I, something I, I think about a lot is like one of my big triggers, and it just happened yesterday, actually. At at this, I keep on referencing this this um, public speaking event that I did at my old school. But one of my one of my old teachers, who I have a good relationship with, she said, "Oh, Ed, you look so tanned at the moment,"
0: mm-hmm. and I
1: was like, "Oh yeah, I've actually you know I've just been on a I had an amazing trip." Uh, You know, we ran an athlete camp in Cebu, Philippines, the weather was beautiful. Then I was coaching the semifinals and Korea was awesome. And she, and her comment was, ah, it must be nice living the life of leisure. And that's something that I think we deal with all the time. And immediately this trigger went off of me Mm. was, okay, Ed, you need to now justify that you work really
0: really hard,
1: and that you need to dispel. And and did
0: you justify, did you go into defensive mode and justify
1: I didn't, but like, I felt the trigger. I felt, and yeah. Thing that this is the thing It's like you know, I love the the saying, "Trust the triggers to teach." Um, yeah, that is one of the biggest triggers that I think I still suffer with in my in my job, which was another one. And I and I sometimes I bite on this, and when I bite on it, I'm pissed off at myself. I'm like, Ed, come mm-hmm. on, you can't bite in this. But you know, I um, and I, I'm going to share this story because I think a lot of people will resonate, especially with in the day and age we live in, where working at home, working from home has become much more of a thing. And truth be told, it's a Friday right now. It's 9 a.m. in the morning. And I'm going to arrive in my gym at probably about 10 a.m. And that's pretty much how I start most days. I start on my computer desk at about 7 a.m. I do all the really hard, meaningful work that I that I need silence for because I can't mm. do it in the busy office. And I do that in my office at home. And I love it. I love that routine every morning. But sometimes you roll in the gym at 10 a.m. And what does someone say? Oh, it must be nice starting your day at 10 a.m. Oh, like... It's why? so
0: interesting, like the yeah. culture of like, why don't we have a culture of appreciation? Like, hey, Ed, good job. What's your morning routine like? So stoked for you. It like, I don't know where like if, it feels like, first of all, I think people are just mimetic entirely. We just copy each other. So they heard that from someone and then they're just going to repeat that from someone else. Yeah. And I, I think that yeah, arrive at work at 10 a.m. And you don't have to ever justify. You don't even yeah. have to ever let anybody know that from 7 a.m. you're doing the hard work. Like no one has to know that. I think I, I think that we have sort of a weird society in that way. So um yeah, it's it's I, funky, I right? We,
1: I think we struggle with that so much. So I find it so hard still. And I you know I think when I think back though, I was I was probably the guy who would have said to the person who rolled in at 10 a.m. Oh, yeah. Must be nice for you to arrive at 10 a.m. Well, I I think
0: those people I think those people, Ed, don't know how to relax. I think they have no idea what it means to have a morning routine, perhaps, or that that hard work and leisure aren't mutually exclusive. Mm. Like like when you're in flow state, it it isn't grind. It's just it's is effortless, and so I I think people like those two people that said that to you like they want to go on vacation and they don't know how to give themselves permission. Yes. Like that guy wants to sleep in and he doesn't know how because he's still hardwired to prove and prove and prove and prove. And so I, I think every time I hear those comments, I'm just like, okay, yeah. <laughs> I am where I am, and you are where you are. You know. Exactly.
1: And I think I think there is a lot of projecting, right? Because you're projecting your, time. Own, your own insecurities and things. Hundred percent. And when I think back to me you know, for someone who valued hard work so much and I wanted to tell the world how hard I was working all the time, um, that's when I would say to someone rocking in at 10 a.m., oh, be nice to have a slow morning.
0: Yeah. And I yeah. recognize
1: that now that that, you know, that's not who I want to be. I don't want to be someone whose self-worth is dictated by how much work they do, because that's what I used to think. You know, yeah. the more I work, the more loved I'm going to be, the more respect I'm going to be. I totally don't associate that with that at all anymore. And I'm trying to break down, yeah. but it doesn't mean that the triggers aren't still there.
0: Yeah. So when, I mean, like, they are big time.
1: Yeah. When that teacher says that, or when that, when that, when that client says that, like it does trigger the old me. And then I totally have, have that split second opportunity to make a decision where it's like, okay, mm. do you bite And do you now justify what you've been doing um, and tell them that, in fact, you have been really working hard? They've totally misjudged it, which would all that would be would be um, validating my own insecurities again. Or, you know what? I have nothing to prove to you. Like, yeah, I know. I know what I do. And I'm totally content and happy with it. And, you know, you're totally entitled to your opinion. And that's absolutely fine. Um, but you know, it doesn't, it yeah. doesn't mean that I don't still think those things. So I'd probably say that's one of my biggest, Big one time. of my well, biggest unlearnings right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not biting the hook. Um, one of my favorite meditation teachers, Tara Brock, she says that, uh, defensiveness is the first act of war. So like the moment we get defensive and justifies and ra- justify and rationalize, we're already at war we're already trying to prove, we're already afraid of being, we're already in, in the space of right, wrong. And I think that I, I you know, I, I work with that myself every day, right? In relationships and in life and go to justify, go to explain, defend. And I, I do that a lot less, which is cool, <laughs> but I can see how much of my life is, has been that. And, and I start to see it in other people more, maybe mm-hmm. siblings or friends. I realize how much they justify and defend themselves. And I'm like, you know, you don't have to do that. Like, and, and, but it, it's a learning process. We can't we can't come out of the womb knowing that actually out of the womb we probably didn't defend anything we never rationalized we never justified we never we never did anything like that um, until we developed the ego and then we started to dance with all of that so
1: yeah yeah i think i think just so you know a massive uh takeaway thing for me is always just reminding myself that it's like you gotta you love yourself you gotta love yourself and when you love yourself it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what others think sometimes um, and, you know, really like not letting those opinions and those moments affect me and impact me or or, or change my self-worth. Um, yeah. But I think, yeah. I honestly think it will be a constant work on, this will be something I will, I will be trying to unlearn probably for the rest of my life. Uh, and yeah. I think, you know, I think that, I think the whole concept of unlearning, Um, you know, when I was exposed to the idea of like releasing past traumas or sitting with traumas or, doing the introspective work to 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 figure out why you feel certain ways is that I was very much in a mindset that at some point I was going to arrive at a destination where these things were no longer a part of me. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm very much now comfortable with knowing that some of these things are going to be a part of me probably forever. Um, yeah. And like, yeah.
0: And it makes Ed, your story more interesting. It's you have a richer tapestry. Mm you know, you're shedding layers and layers and layers of your being that never served you then and probably definitely isn't serving you now. And I think that makes your story more interesting, right? Like, I, I don't know that there's an arrival point, even though, of course, I think about it myself all the time, right? Like, well, I've made it when, but uh, yeah, I think those narratives are ones we're just going to keep dancing with for like a long, long time. And um, I think that's, that's kind of the spiritual play of the work is seeing when you go down that path. And I kind of ask myself and my clients a lot. I'm like, you know, again, am I committed to being right? Or can I hold this lightly? You know, is my fist closed or is it open? And I think those are really simple ways to just realize, Oh, we're going down that path again. We're there again. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Ed, I want to do something with you. I do with every guest. I have some rapid fire questions for you. Um, And I'm going to finish
1: with my rapid fire question to you.
0: Perfect. Um, I, I have a lot here, so stay with me here. First thing that comes to mind, uh, whatever comes up for you, just share it. Um, Hardcover book or Audible? Audible. Last song you listen to?
1: Um, Cool Down by, I'm going to say his name wrong, Koke Kai. I think it's something like that.
0: Cool. Person you look up to the most?
1: is no longer quick fire
0: i know right (laughs)
1: Ah, this is hard i'm gonna come ask me that at the end next one
0: okay um best leadership advice you ever heard or received
1: I don't I don't know if this is the best one, but I like it. If you want to go, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together.
0: I love that. Uh what breaks your heart?
1: It's a heavy it's a great question. these are great questions, Lisa. Um, what breaks mm-hmm. my heart? Um I can't, there's a better word to describe this, but a, a lack of kindness between human beings.
0: Yeah, same. Last two questions. What's Who is the last person that gave you a really good hug?
1: Um, my girlfriend, my partner this morning.
0: Beautiful. Um, and this is a debate question. It's very controversial. My podcast um, is a hot dog a sandwich. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, you know what? I would not call a hot dog a sandwich. I'm sorry.
0: Appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, I'm on your team too.
1: <laughs> um, okay. Well, my question to you, Elisa, is... If you could have your perfect day, what would you do? And what would it look like?
0: I guess I have to think about what perfect is, right? Um
1: your ideal day.
0: Mm. Mm. I-, I think that it's um uh... It's something about waking up in a house and feeling really supported and loved by the people that are there. Um, and just just waking up and not looking at my phone and sitting down and reading something and writing something before I begin to take in data. And, and having a really, I love my iced matcha in the morning, matcha tea. Um, and then moving and like being in nature, honestly, just like whether that be a walk, a run, a hike, just being outside for before noon. If I can move before noon, I'm in good, I'm in a good space uh, for the rest of the day. And ideally it's outside. Um, and then some level of play, like it could be like spiritual play, like having a riff or a conversation with someone, just really feeling connected with someone. I, I sometimes play with this too. Ed, I'll be in New York and I'll have like a two minute moment with the barista. And I, it feels like the best moment. I'm like, ah, cool. I had that exchange with a stranger, right? Like those are the moments where I feel alive. You know, like I was walking down the street the other day and I saw this guy with a t-shirt on and had like a planet on it. I just stopped a guy and I was like, I love your t-shirt, you know, and that sort of a live energy is what makes me feel like the day is well-lived. If I can just get out of myself and be into the world in those small, small ways, nothing grandiose. Right. Um, And then I I like doing meaningful work. I probably would coach a client or two um, and be really present with them and see where we go. And then. I don't know. Uh, probably something chill at night. I'm I'm less of a bar party person. As anyone who knows me, I'm more just like let's watch a movie and or play a board game or something. Um, and and be in bed by ten. That'd be a wonderful day.
1: Love it. Thank you for sharing.
0: Of course. Well, what's your perfect day? You have to reciprocate the question. What well, what, what happens? Day.
1: Uh, you know, not too dissimilar from yours, to be honest. And I think that's something that I I notice is a very recurring theme with a lot of my guests is that we have very similar perfect days, um, mm. be awake. I would love to wake up as the sun rises and I would mm. love to be in a place where the sun's not rising too aggressively early. I'd say around like a 5 45, 6 AM sunrise. So I wake up, I watch the sunrise. Um, my morning routines are exactly as they are now. So, you know, there's no, there's no digital intake for the first hour of waking, um, it's a home cooked breakfast. Um, with a coffee uh, and I'm sitting eating it outdoors where the sunlight of the morning is always on, yeah whether it's on a balcony or a rooftop or, or in a garden with grass under my feet or on a beach that would be amazing um, I actually think my morning then would be doing some meaningful work as well you know there would be mm-hmm. an hour or two maybe an hour or three of doing some form of work and what I'm doing right now um, which is you know serving others and then it would be movement It would be training of some sort, Um, probably in the gym. Uh, Mm. It would be a nice, wholesome, healthy lunch with friends and people that I love. Uh, The afternoon would be in nature, Uh, whether it be a mountain, it would be the sea. It'd probably be doing some form of movement in nature once again, whether it's hiking, it's playing sport, um, but definitely outdoors uh, for sure. Um, And dinner with my loved ones again and Yeah. You know, meaningful conversation, no, no electronics at nighttime, just being super present with whoever's around me. Uh, And then basically the nighttime protocol that I have now uh, and in bed probably by (laughs) 8.30 PM.
0: That's right. Um, 8.30. My goodness. Go ahead.
1: And honestly, when I talk about my perfect day, it's really not too too dissimilar to what my day looks like now. The only things I'm missing, and I'm very aware of this, and me and my partner talk about it all the time is we don't have outdoor space at home. So if we had a balcony, Or a rooftop that had sunlight on it, it would almost be—I'd almost be living my perfect day every single day. Uh, If we had a beach, something to work towards now. (laughs) Yeah, we had a beach on our doorstep. That would be, you know, just the next level. Uh, Yeah,
0: yeah, wonderful. Well, Ed, it's been great to be a guest on your podcast and to have you on mine and to do our first pod swap officially. Um, And I just can't wait to see what what more you're up to with training and, you know growth, growth mindset. And just, you know, I want to see what your next uh, expansion of your comfort zone is too.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Lisa. And I want to reciprocate all those, all those lovely words. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak to you. I've actually really, really, really loved this conversation. Uh, And when I look at my rough agenda of what we were going to talk about today, I think we literally covered like two out of the eight subjects. That might mean that we're going to have to have a follow-up episode at
0: some point. Um, for being, sure. I mean, self-validation is its own and responsibility is really its own podcast. So yeah, <laughs> happy, to, happy to, happy um, to.
1: But, you know, love love the work that you're doing as well. Love the content that you're putting out there into the world. Um, and of course your podcast. So thank you very much for your time, your energy. I know it's getting late over there in New York. Um, mm-hmm. I look forward to
0: our next one. 100%. Take care. Hey friends, thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.